Hello and welcome back to another episode of Bills with Luke Scorzel. Today we have a special guest, Brian Nichols, the associate editor at the Libertarian Republic and host of The Brian Nichols Show. He's also a contributor at Red Alert and has worked on many political campaigns throughout his career, from local elections to one for the United States Congress. So a very interesting conversation coming up. Be sure to tune in. I'm Luke Scorzel and you're listening to Bill's. Now, before we get into the interview, I'd first like to take a minute to say thank you to some of our patrons to the Bills of Luke Scorzel podcast. So thank you to Zach for his tremendous $30 donation. And actually, in today's interview towards the end or whenever they are relevant, we're going to ask some of Zach's own questions to Brian and Brian will answer those for us. So very interesting. I'm exciting to have what is our first mailbag coming up and that's available to all of our patrons. But thank you also to Mike and Julie for their $15 donation and to Tiana for her $15 donation. All greatly appreciated. Um, head over to patreon.com slash bills with Luke to get your special exclusive rewards. We have episodes early. So right now, um, my interview with Jordan A. Brown is already published on Patreon. And so is my interview with Sarah Lee Whitson. Head on over there. And without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hello and welcome back to episode 39 of Bills with Luke Scorzel. Today we are here with Brian Nichols. I'm absolutely honored to have him as a guest. He is the associate editor at the Libertarian Republic and host of the Brian Nichols Show. So thanks for coming on, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Luke, thanks so much for uh, for having me on. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation today. I'm very excited to uh, talk about libertarianism. So getting into that... Can you tell us a little bit about your background? You're not only experienced in the publishing of politics, but also in getting your hands dirty and being on the campaign trail. So can you give us kind of an overview of how you've gotten into politics and what you've done? (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's a really nice way to put it because, um, I mean, I really didn't have a choice when it came to uh, being involved in politics. I uh, actually grew up in a very political household uh, my grandfather was the uh, the town supervisor, actually still is a tune, uh, town supervisor for my home area up in northern New York. Uh, my father was uh, the county legislature uh, representative for my, my home area, as well as the chairman for the board. Uh, he's currently the elections commissioner for my home county. And uh, as you mentioned, I, I've been involved in, in politics not only through my, my personal life and my family, but also involved in political campaigns. I served uh, on New York State Assembly campaign, uh, county clerk, state uh, senate campaign, and then most notably in uh, 2012, I was the mobile field representative for a gentleman running for uh, Congress up in northern New York. Um, and with that, I mean, I've just been involved in in politics, you know, more, more beyond the, the, the campaign trail, uh, doing advocacy. Um, the vice chair for America's Future Foundation here in Philadelphia, um, as, as you mentioned, associate editor over the Libertarian Republic and a host of my own show on uh, the We Are Libertarians network called The Brian Nichols Show, aptly named. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've spent uh, pretty much my entire life involved in some way, shape or form in politics. And uh, I got to tell you, I love every minute of it. How exactly did you get into podcasting? I'm kind of interested in that. So you started with all of like, you know, the, I guess what you think of when you think of politics is the campaigns and all of that, but it's really evolved um, with the use of technology and the internet to become like getting the word out about, um, in your case, libertarianism. So how did you get involved with podcasting in the first place? Because this isn't in the first show that you've hosted, right? 
Correct. So I, uh, I'll actually rewind back to my, my days in college. Um, I, I hosted a show. Um, it was a top 40 show uh, when I was you know gracing the airways in college. And I really found the, the medium of, of radio slash, which, which is turned in with technology, turned into uh, to podcasting. I find that to be the, the best medium to be able to convey my political views and to really try and have conversations with people. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, this isn't my first uh, podcast. I actually started with the Around the Republic podcast on the uh, the Libertarian Republic uh, network. Um, but I was actually reached out to by uh, Chris Spangle, who is the uh, the founder of We Are Libertarians, um, former chair of the Indiana State uh, Libertarian Party, and uh, you know he he's built up quite an empire in, in podcasting over at We Are Libertarians, and and I, I was invited to to join on his show a, a few times. Uh, which is the We Are Libertarians uh, flagship show. And after a few times on the show and Chris and I becoming closer and, and better friends, um, he said, you know, hey, w- would you be interested in in having your own show? And I said, hey, you know what? I would I would absolutely be honored to have a show. So he gave me the the ability to utilize the platform that is the We Are Libertarians platform for the show. And since January, really haven't looked back. We've been the the, the fastest growing libertarian podcast. And uh you know, with that, I'm so thankful for all the the viewers and and the 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 individuals I've had on my show have ranged from all types of political persuasion, from you know individuals on the far left that are are basically you know socialists to um, people on the right who are are so far libertarian that they're the the borderline in in caps. So I mean, it, it's it's been a heck of an experience, and I think you know it's really been a rewarding experience because. The main goal of my show is to bring on people from all walks of life and all political persuasions to really have meaningful conversations that will help us find some common ground where we probably wouldn't otherwise. So if we're, you know, conversing via social media or you're just reading in an article, it it, it you you lose the ability to have a conversation. You lose the ability to really hear someone out because you're you're stuck behind this confine of of just reading text. Um, but to actually speak with someone, try to figure out the differences, at the very least, try to find some common ground, some of those common principles that maybe we can come to agree with. You know, we might not agree 100%, and that's okay. I don't expect people to agree 100%, but to, at the very least, find, you know, maybe the if it's 30% or 70% or 90% of where we agree, and then really focus on those strong areas of agreement and hopefully be able to uh, to lead forward and and promote some some really long-lasting positive change. I had Jordan A. Brown on my show last week, and I know you were on his show, but we talked about the importance of conversation and talking about ideas and people that you wouldn't normally maybe associate with on social media or in real life, but you get to hear them on a podcast and be exposed to those ideas and say, hey, like I agree with this person on that, even though I don't agree with anything else that they talk about, but at least we have something in common. So today we're going to have um, an excellent conversation. Now, getting into your ideology, you had a shift from the Republican Party to the Libertarian ideology, and maybe the party, not totally sure yet, Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about that, and what kind of leap is that from Republican ideology and party to the Libertarian point of view? So it all started back in 2012 um, after I, I finished up on my uh, my congressional campaign. I uh, at that point in time was was fully in embracing the the larger Republican Party. Um, but at the same point in time, I myself and I think this is true for uh, 
a strong majority of uh, young Republicans, um, I found myself, I guess, not really realizing it, but I was embracing this small L libertarian ideology where it's it's really it was the idea of um, social acceptance and tolerance with the with the um, the idea of fiscal responsibility and watching Mitt Romney uh, get defeated by Barack Obama and listening to individuals who were I would consider to be moderates or at the very least independents say that one of the main things that pushed them to vote for for Mitt, or I'm sorry for Obama over Mitt Romney was truly the 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 social aspect and I I. I said, you know, well, what about the economic side of things? And they said, well, yeah, it makes sense what he was saying, you know, with, with with regards to economics. But in terms of the social side of things, you know, that was that's what ultimately pushed me to uh, to make my vote uh, count towards Obama. And I I really found that that was a, a big red flag for me, um, thinking, you know, I, I agree with what they're saying, but I, I wish the GOP would be able to to reflect that in not only their platform but also the candidates that they were promoting. And um, I, I started to to do more and more kind of soul searching, and I found the individuals in the, in the Republican Party, like your your Ron Pauls and your Rand Pauls and your Thomas Masseys and and Justin Amashes, and I, I I was thinking, well, you know, these guys they they are under the Republican banner, but they're they're not the the traditional Republican. They're not this social conservative, um, you know, Republican that. It really it comes across much more divisive and uh, standoffish than than you know the the ideas that they're promoting. So I started to do some more research, and I, I you know began I began to understand what it was to be a quote unquote libertarian, and uh, with that was really that social tolerance and acceptance with the the embracing of, of fiscal sanity and responsibility, and um, you know that really kind of shaped my my beliefs, and I I, I am still registered as a a Republican. Um, and I, I do that more along the lines to be able to still vote for Republican candidates in primaries um, who more closely reflect the libertarian ideology because I really believe that parties are nothing more than vessels, to be quite honest. I actually had um, Dean um, Dean Clancy on my show back in February, uh, former White House policy advisor under the Bush administration, and you know Dean and I were discussing uh, w- what's the whole idea of parties? What's, what's their role? And – I agree with with Dean in terms of you know Republican, Democrat, uh, Libertarian parties, Green Party, etc. They're they're merely vessels to to bring these different ideologies and these different perspectives into government. Um, so I look at someone like Austin Peterson who's utilizing the Republican platform, their their vessel of being this you know this one of the two largest political parties, and using that to try and promote libertarian values to a much larger audience. Um, I, I think that for me is, is probably the the most sensible way to bring um, libertarian beliefs to the, the forefront. But that's not to say that the libertarian party doesn't have a role. And in that role, I believe is to really help cultivate libertarian thinking um, to to show that there is a true alternative to the the, the two major parties. And really, the the main goal I, I believe, and it's unfortunate, but the real goal and and role of the Libertarian Party is to keep the other two parties honest. Um, you know, we saw over in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we had that special election 
uh, for the congressional race between the Republican and Democrat and then a third party being the Libertarian candidate. And the Libertarian candidate uh, ended up with the number of votes that was the – ended up being the difference in the Democrat beating the Republican. And all the Republicans are saying, you wasted your vote on on this Libertarian candidate. Why didn't you just vote for the, the Republican? And it's like, well, you, you don't you – don't, didn't deserve our vote just for existing. You have to earn the vote. So stop running crappy candidates. Start running candidates who will actually go out and earn these people's votes. And, uh, you know, it, it does. It keeps those parties honest. And with that, we've seen the likes of a Rand Paul and a Justin Amash and a Thomas Massey and I would say, dare say a, a Mike Lee um, in, in Washington who are reflecting these ideals. Um, and, you know, it gives me hope. It, it really leads me to, to hope going forward that we'll have these these elected officials in Washington under the Republican uh, Party platform and banner who will then be able to reach a lar larger audience with their libertarian ideals under under uh, under that vessel. Um, so that's really my my entire perspective as to the value of the parties and and I guess ultimately why I still remain a Republican, even though I uh, I still do consider myself a, Repu a recovering Republican. Um, I still I still see that value in in what the party brings especially in terms of its outreach. Yeah, I I definitely agree with um, the parties being basically vessels to forward different ideologies and libertarianism being one of those ideologies. But it's it's really interesting, I think, that you um, respond to that argument of, oh, um, libertarians just take away votes from Republicans as being as saying you need to earn our votes. Like it's not just that these people are voting for that person um, like just randomly they're voting for them because they agree with them over the Republican that is running. So I, I think that that's interesting because that's an argument that you hear a lot against libertarians um, is that they actually keep more conservatives from getting into office. So there's uh, like, think about it. I mean, like why, why do Republicans feel they just automatically deserve libertarian votes? And it really does. It, it, it peeves me because I mean, I was in the Republican party for pretty much my entire life. Up until I decided, you know, well, I'm still a him in the Republican Party, but my ideology really wasn't something that I was focusing so much on on the party. And we we see this this notion of principles of a party, especially in the Libertarian Party, which I do embrace. Um, but I look at the Republican Party, and there's no principles anymore. It's it's this this tribalist groupthink mentality. It's like, well, if you got an R next to your name, you you have to vote with the the R candidate. It's like, no, like just run a candidate that's a good candidate that I can support based on principles. Otherwise, they're not going to get my vote. Like there is a vast difference between Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton, and John McCain than Rand Paul, Justin Amash, and Thomas Massey. I mean, they both have R's next to their name, but in terms of principle and ideology, there is a vast difference, which is why my heart broke when I saw Rand Paul get defeated in the GOP primary because Rand really was that true alternative and he was bringing libertarian messaging to the forefront as a, a you know, at the time it was a, a top GOP contender until the Trump happened. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does, um, it does behoove me a little bit to see the, the GOP try and, and just, you know, do this groupthink mentality. It's like, no, st stand for something. Stop, stop this groupthink. Stop this tribalism. This, this nonsense. Stand for something. Stand for principles, and stop standing for for just you know an, uh, a letter after your name. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because the left has really orchestrated this attack on everything that G that the GOP and the Republican Party ultimately did stand for. So, like, you could just run through them like uh, Ben Shapiro or really anyone on the right does. Um, 
family values, uh, religion, Christianity, and and the importance of having like an objective truth in the world uh, regarding science and, and all of that stuff. So a lot of core beliefs that I think were pretty standard that the Republicans especially promoted, the importance of marriage um, and of the two parents staying together to raise their kids. So all of those stances that they took have then been under attack for years now by the far left and now even the moderate left. So I think it's interesting to see how maybe that's evolved with the Republican Party maybe abandoning some of their principles and saying, hey, uh, we're out there for not- for whatever, like we'll do whatever you want us to do, which is a terrible way to go about, but I guess what they're left with. But the libertarians, on the other hand, I think are interesting because they forward the ideas of limited government and um, conservative fiscal policy, but they also have this aspect that you bring up of social policy that that's not really involved and that just lets people do whatever they want. And if, if that means you want to be on the left and fight that cultural battle, then so be it. If you want to be on the right and fight the family cultural battle, then so be it. Well, if I may, I, I want to, to correct something really quick. And I say this because I think that's actually a common misconception about libertarians. And I think a part of that is because some of the people we've had leading our, our party um, really haven't been able to convey libertarianism effectively. So, uh, what you just mentioned there is, in, you know, said uh, basically it was a libertine men- mentality. You know, do whatever you want. That's actually not libertarianism. Uh, libertarianism is not being libertine, which is essentially saying, you know, to do whatever it is you want. Um, and, and unfortunately, we had somebody like Gary Johnson lead the party last year, or in 2016 rather, um, who promoted this idea of fiscal conservatism and being socially liberal. And that's also not, not being a libertarian. Um, and and uh, if I can really, uh, you know, summarize what it means to be a libertarian, and this actually goes to, uh, you know, shameless plug here, my my latest bumper sticker sales uh, venture, which is, um, don't hurt people and don't take people's stuff. I mean, that really comes down to the fundamental ideology of libertarianism is not harming or not having your actions impact someone negatively, um, and then also not taking. Uh, someone else's things away from them. So really, the idea of, of taxation, um, you know, re- redistribution of wealth. Uh, but in terms of the, the social side of things, um, you know, we see people who are, are socially liberal trying to utilize the government, the the strong arm of the government, to change people's uh, their their actions to the point that it is actually hurting people. It's it's causing negative. Um, it's causing a negative response. So, for instance, over in Canada, uh, where you have these new restrictive speech laws, um, you know, if you misgender someone, uh, you you can actually be be put in jail. Um, over, I mean, we see it over in in the United Kingdom, where we had uh, Count Dankula, who, you know, he he did some stupid stuff and said some stupid stuff. That's his right. He wasn't harming anybody, but the government, with their speech laws, ended up arresting him. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's I think where where one thing libertarians had to have a, a stronger messaging is to say it's not to do whatever you want it's not to you know, yes you can be a social justice warrior and be a libertarian but that means that you have to be able to change minds not use government to to forcibly change people's minds or to to change action the inverse is true because think about conservatives conservatives want to use government in, in many cases to promote traditional family values or or i would say traditional christian values that's not the role of government and that's the reason why our government made it so um, so embedded in our First Amendment uh, with regards to the, the the right to practice your religion as you see fit, your, your freedom of or fr- uh, freedom of religion. So if you are a Muslim or a Jew or a Hindu or a Christian, you're able to to exercise your rights as an individual as you see fit. And um, 
you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of I would call them theocratic Republicans or conservatives who they seek to use government as a means to enact this social structure. And I mean, I, I do butt heads with quite a few social conservatives. That's not the role of government. That's the role of society uh, to be able to work with each other, not to use your, your you know, quote unquote democracy, which is 50 plus one uh, mentality to then you know, make the other 49% adjust their their beliefs and their values and their practices to fit what is your your world view. And I think, you know, not only Republicans, but Democrats have to really look at things hard and, and say, okay, what happens if we grant this power? And then all of a sudden, we lose control. So for instance, we're seeing a lot of uh, Democrats freaking out over Trump. Um, and a lot of the reasons they're freaking out over Trump is because for eight years, they, their guy was in the White House, and they gave him immense power to do whatever the hell he wanted with really no no recourse. Um, and, I mean, we're seeing right now with these kids at the border being taken away. Um, you know, that was happening under Obama, and all of a sudden Trump's there in office, and he's he's you know really cracking down on it, and that's leading to these these liberals and Democrats freaking out. And honestly, it's rightfully it's a rightful freak out, but it's like, hey, the reason you're freaking out is because for eight years, you let your your guy in office run run away scotch free with no with no repercussion, no recourse, and and this is this is the monster you created. You've created a massive government that's able to do really whatever it wants without fear of of recourse. And and with that, you have an executive who has so much power that they're able to pretty much, you know, do whatever they want by the, the stroke of a pen. And that's insanity. I mean, our, our founders and framers must be rolling in their graves, seeing the the inflated executive branch at its current state right now, be it a Democrat in office or a Republican in office. And I think, you know, we, we as a society need to take a hard step back and look at things objectively and say, do we really want government or one branch of government particularly to have this much power? Because the reality is you're only going to hold power for a certain amount of time. The pendulum swings one way and they better be aware it's going to swing back the other way. And then they're going to have to face the uh, the consequences of their actions in terms of putting so much power in one particular branch. And that's kind of the problem is you get so much done back and forth on each side that eventually it all becomes a blurred line as to what's actually good policy and what's bad policy and whether you can get rid of uh, different policies. But yeah, essentially what I was saying, I guess, uh, maybe to clarify some of the definitions, was not essentially that government would be involved in a lot of those social issues, but rather that the government provides the basic functions and then the people are able to get involved and do whatever they want because they have the freedoms that are guaranteed by the Constitution um, to do that. So it's not I, like I totally agree with you that the government should not be involved in um, pushing any point of view because essentially what ends up happening is that then when the other side gets in power, then they just push the other point of view because the precedent is set that they can do that. So, for example, in California right now, there's a bill, um, Assembly Bill 2943, which is trying to ban any books um, that have conversion therapy or that advocate a cure to homosexuality. Banning books, that's always going well in history, right? Yeah, <laughs> so scary. And the, like, obviously, yeah, conversion therapy, probably not the greatest thing, but, like, if you want to do it, then I guess that's your right to do it, um, but no one should be forcing it on you. But, like, yeah, the banning the books part, like, you can't just ban books because you don't agree with their message, because then what's the precedent that that leads to? And I think that's kind of what 
what you're talking about with the problem of government being involved in that type of thing is. So you can disagree with with the message, but it should still be allowed out there and the government shouldn't be involved in advocating or not advocating that message. And I think one thing to, to point out too is just because government isn't um, isn't you know, promoting one way of thinking over the other doesn't mean that in your in your non-government interaction life, can you impose your will on somebody else? So you mentioned their um, conversion therapy, right? So one argument that might be made, and I'm not making this argument, is like, well, is, you know, if, if we're getting rid of government, then that means that somebody will be able to to force conversion therapy upon somebody else. And and that actually is, is a, a fundamental disagreement with not only, uh, you know, I think morally people with a, across the aisle, but also with libertarianism is – at the, the the premise of libertarianism is the the idea of the non-aggression principle, where you you don't negatively impact someone, um, be it physically or the likes. So if I'm in my personal life and and just you know say hey, to a gay guy, I don't think you should be gay, and I'm gonna make you do conversion therapy. That's that's a strict violation of the non-aggression principle. So, um, you know, with that the the the, re, the difference is the re, libertarians, we don't see the government as the arbiter of morality. Um, we don't see government as, and it's actually funny because Glenn Beck just tweeted this last night, government isn't our religion. Um, and that's one problem I think many people uh, who identify as Republicans and Democrats have gotten to this mindset of you know, their, their, their politics almost as their religion. And um, the reality is in libertarianism, we look at government as really the, the ultimate, uh, the, the ultimate uh, destructive power in terms of going against morality. Um, you know, if we look at examples in history where government using its role to to execute morality, I mean, we had the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, slavery in the United States, Japanese internment camps. Those were all being done at behest of, of a government. Um, Jim Crow. So government isn't exact Jim Crow laws. I mean, the, the, the list, unfortunately, throughout history is very dark and very long. And um, it, it's depressing to see how quickly people are are willing to cede their rights and their responsibility along with it to government in the idea that the government is going to take care of them and and ultimately do just and right and moral things. Um, I think, and this kind of goes again to the idea of personal responsibility, is that uh, we as a society have, have ceded so much personal responsibility to the government that we're, we're almost uh, – I want to say hopeless, but we're we're really at behest of government to the detriment of our society because no longer are we saying you know what should we do in our own personal lives to lead by example. We're just saying well you know government will take care of it, um, whether it's it's welfare um, you know or it's it's the roads or it's um, you know to help with equality and social justice. We just we just push everything over to the government instead of looking around and saying, all right, we got to take personal responsibility in our own communities and, and to really lead by example. And that's one thing I think that we as a society, we have to get a kick in the, in, in the ass and say like, hey, stop, take a time out, flip things into neutral, calm down, and let's start to look at what we're doing or, or in some cases not doing and what can we do better to make it so we are able to have a, a, a true um, – form of progress. I mean, the idea of progress isn't, isn't a bad thing. Um, you know, we look at where we were 200 years ago to where we are now, and we're in a much better place. Uh, and I think 
a part of that is because we didn't look to government to solve all of our problems. Um, we were able to, as a society, be able to make those decisions and those changes on our own. We got to get back to that mindset. We really have to get back to relying on each other to make decisions and to work with another one another to promote true positive progress while not hurting the people and looking to the government to, to do our, our bidding. And I think that once we're able to make that decision and make that, that move, we're going to be in a much better position going forward. Off the point um, that uh, things have gotten exponentially better in the last 200 years or so, there's actually, so Steven Pinker, um, I haven't read the book, but I've heard and read a little bit about it. Um, I think it's called The, the Better An- Angels of Our Nature. And the premise of his book is that all of the bad things in the universe or in the world have been declining. So murder rates um, have been declining, disease declining. But the good things like wealth have been increasing and increasing. And much of that isn't to do at all with government it has to do with the fact that people are innovating more and and using each other's knowledge to progress further and progress further and um, get rid of the bad things and promote the good so yeah it's interesting that like we don't have to have the government always meddling in our business to try to make things better because like you just said like when you look at history when you look at the history of the united states and everything that was wrong with the united states it was the government (laughs) Like slavery, mandated by yeah, the government. Exactly. Jim Crow, mandated by the government. So like government-mandated discrimination was the problem in the early 20th century. It wasn't that like, yeah, okay, no, not to say that, but people were racist, like obviously racist, but the government was enforcing that racism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and I always get irked when people are talking about it. So, yeah, I know we we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, the uh, the whole bake the cake argument with the uh, the Supreme Court decision here where people are saying, well – with the Supreme Court decision, it's just going to go back to to you know the discrimination and no blacks allowed. It's like time out. Let's let's look at what actually happened in history. In the South, it wasn't that individual business owners were saying no blacks allowed. It's that state governments actually had codified discrimination laws on the books that didn't allow whites and blacks to eat together and the likes. And in this is one thing I think people don't understand about you know free markets is that. If there is a a void in the market, so for instance, if there was a void uh, today, let's say for instance where, um, you know, let let's just take the the bake the cake argument, where this this gay couple is not able to to find a place to get a a cake baked, then number one, the market would find a, a means because there is a an untapped market now with you know these these gay couples looking for cakes. Number one, but number two, in the era of of constant communication and social interaction we have the ability to to point out saying hey look at this restaurant and what they're doing or this bakery what they're doing they're not baking a cake for gay people shame them i mean just here we'll we'll do something very topical um there was a lady i think her her name is annette something she but she's been going on as um oh what's the uh the the twitter hashtag it was um uh, it was the the little the little kid who wanted to, to sell water on the street but she basically was saying, oh, permit Patty. That's what it was. Hashtag oh. permit Patty. And this lady, she called the police on an eight-year-old who was trying to sell water bottles, right, mm-hmm. on the uh, on the street, saying that though she didn't have a permit and she can't sell water bottles. First of all, any sane person's going to say, that's absolutely effing nuts. Like, you're, it's an eight-year-old selling water bottles, number one. But number two, this just shows how effective the free market is. Permit Patty was identified as a, a CEO of a um, I think it's a, a weed slash CDB company that was selling products for for animals. 
And they, number one, found her name, found her company. And within, like, less than 24 hours, like, five of her major uh, vendors she worked with have dropped her and her products. And, and she's already facing the backlash socially for what she did and what she said. Now, that's how the marketplace works. Nobody is going out of their way to, to you know, use the government to, to shut her down. It was her own actions that stopped the government. If we don't think that in, in 2018 that wouldn't happen anywhere else in, in any other marketplace, then I think we're, we're fooling ourselves. I mean, we see the marketplace work, and honestly, a lot of the places where the marketplace, quote-unquote, fails is where government gets involved and government picks winners and losers through excessive regulations or subsidies or, or tax burden. Definitely, and I'd actually like to get your thoughts on the Masterpiece Cake Shop case we could do that right now um but the difference between individual liberty and religious liberty and even free speech that the um baker did he have the right to refuse to make that cake or did the gay couple have the right to that cake did they have the right to his services so as a libertarian i i could assume maybe what you would be thinking but which do you think should have prevailed in the case and it wasn't really solved um the supreme court kind of went on this like bizarre nitpicky thing about what actually had happened earlier um, with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission in that case. But mm-hmm. um, what are your thoughts? Should religious liberty prevail over LGBTQ rights? I th- if I may, I think the, the framing of the question is a little off. It's not that religious liberty should trump LGBTQ rights. It's that personal property rights trump trump the, the government mandate. So I... I I love getting this question because often it's questions that are asked by people on the left. They say, Brian, do you really think that it's it's right for a baker to deny a gay couple services? And I say, no, I don't. I'm like, well, how can you side with this this then? And I say, well, because let me ask you. Let me flip the question. Would it be right for a Jewish baker to refuse service to a, a neo-Nazi group? Would it be right – for an African-American family who owned a bakery to deny services to a KKK group. And, and they kind of get flummoxed. And the reality is, is that you are responsible for, for who you are as a person and your personal interactions. And a lot of that comes with the, the voluntary uh, exchanges that we make on a day-to-day basis. So, so for the example of the Masterpiece Bake, uh, bake Shop case – the, the guy had every right to discriminate as he sees fit, and he has every right to face the backlash of, of his discrimination in the marketplace. We don't need government to come in and, and quote-unquote, fix these problems. The market fixes these problems on its own. And just going back to Permit Patty here, we, we see the the outcome of the marketplace being able to work. There was no government needed to to make this woman pay for her, her absolute idiocy. And ironically, it was her trying to get government to get involved to stop an eight-year-old selling water that ended up costing her so much. So now, with that being said... If somebody's discriminating, so let's say, for instance, that a white owner of a, a, a bakery decided to discriminate against a black person, I think that they're a, a piece of human debris for doing that, but they have the right to do it. And we have the right in the marketplace to to shame that person and to point out what a terrible human being they are for not 
pro providing their services to an individual. And we have a responsibility to do that. But as soon as we, we call mommy and daddy government and say, come fix this, look at this person being mean, as soon as we do that, we're now opening the door for the government to come in and, mend, uh, and to regulate every other voluntary interaction and exchange that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's a horrible precedence. And um, I think you know we we would be much better suited to to look at these voluntary exchanges, and to say, you know, well, what's right, what's wrong, and you know, should we really force anyone to perform any action because, well, we it it's quote unquote my feels. Um, you know, you look at uh, what just happened with Sarah Sanders. She went to uh, the Red Hen Cafe, and the the owner said, hey, you know what, I I don't want to serve you here. That's the owner's right. Like the owner has the right to do that. And that's the whole point. You shouldn't be forced to perform a service or to perform um, you know, any type of, of uh, servitude to anyone because the government says so. It's it's an idea of property rights. Nobody should, should force you to perform some type of service because the government says so. It just it, – it's it, – really kind of goes against the entire idea uh, of being an individual and having your your own ability to make make decisions on your own and, and it really violates um, the entire concept of a voluntary exchange uh, so yes I think the masterpiece cake decision was decided right unfortunately it was not decided for the right reasons um, I think we're we're gonna face this coming up in in the next few years where it actually is going to get to the meat and potatoes of the issue at hand, which is, you know, the the idea of property rights. And um, I hope when that time comes that we have a strong libertarian or conservative uh, Supreme Court that can make that decision right. So I'm interested, actually, kind of on the flip side of what we were talking about um, with like Jim Crow laws and government enforced discrimination. What is the prerogative of the government if, say, but let's just say you go back to uh, the early 20th century when everyone is very racist. Um, and you say, okay, the government, do they have the obligation to try to address this racism with more progressive policy? Kind of what you're seeing um, with the left right now and trying to fight for all these minority rights that I don't totally agree that there's like a total, like as much of a discrimination, but like I can see that you'd want to fight for a progressive policy to get maybe the playing field even, so to say. So in your view, is there an obligation of the government to level the playing field and to like enforce some of that policy, or does it just result in eventually more discrimination later? But if this like society is unwilling to change, for example. So there's actually, it. I hate to, to respond in a meme, but there's a meme that, <laughs> that covers this perfectly. And it's a, uh, it's three guys uh, trying to look into a a baseball park, right? And the meme originally was shown as the idea of fairness and equality, right? So uh, one guy was like, you know, six, we'll say six feet tall. The other guy was five foot five. And the other guy was five foot tall. Um, you know, the, the six foot tall guy could see over the fence, no problem. The five foot guy had two boxes to stand on so he could see over. And the, the five foot guy had one box and he couldn't see over. Um so that that they're like, oh well, to make it fair, the the five foot five guy should give one in the box to the the five foot guy so they can all see over. They're being treated equally so they can get the equal opportunity or the equal outcome, right? Um, the problem is that mean it the idea that this fence is in the way, right? Get rid of the fence. 
There's no need for the fence in this meme, and it says to create equity um, so that you have the equal opportunity to be able to see the game without the, the barrier in the way. So to get rid of the fence, in most cases, the fence is government. The fence that's put in the way in all these examples of, of racial discrimination, in sexual orientation discrimination, transgender discrimination, et cetera, et cetera, is nine times out of ten going to be – I'd say dare say ten times out of ten, it, that fence in the way is going to be at behest of the government. Um, so as soon as we start creating more fences, more regulations, and the idea of trying to create this this uh, you know this fairy tale land idea of equality of outcome, it's just going to create more and more problems. It's going to be this exponentially worse situation down the road because now you have all these fences in the way. And uh, I think we have to really look at and to quote, well, to paraphrase Milton Friedman, you know, we have to stop judging government policies based on their intentions and intentions, and instead judge them based on their outcomes. So, for instance, has the war on on poverty really been a a success? Has the war on drugs been a success? Did did uh, you know the, the the civil rights movement? Did that really yield any true positive results or outcomes, or did it create more issues that now we're facing today? And I think it. If we are able to objectively look at the outcomes of increased government regulation, we will be able to truly see that government doesn't fix problems. It, it puts Band-Aids on problems that then end up becoming infected down the road and cause much, much worse problems. We have to stop looking at the government to be the the fixer, the solution to our problems and to, to really look objectively is the government fixing and solving things and i think as soon as we objectively look at that we're going to be able to come to a pretty unanimous consensus that no the government doesn't fix these problems i think the reason maybe we haven't come to that consensus is i think a lot of people both on the left and the right think that like politics and government is the sole avenue on which they can like promote their point of view and can go viral or whatever and and asking like Nancy Pelosi to make a change or change or whatever like um so i guess i don't know if that makes sense like that the people see politics as their one avenue and is inherently attached to making changes in government but not inherently focused on making changes in society so well it goes back to what i said before why do they do that because it shirks personal responsibility away from them actually trying to do something different in their personal lives by either starting a nonprofit or or leading a, a, a you know a boycott or leading a march. Um, instead, it shirks that personal responsibility away to mommy and daddy government to then take over this responsibility to then use government's power to make the change they want to see. So. I think, again, it goes back to this personal responsibility. If we're not going to embrace personal responsibility, be it on the left or the right, then then we're, we're going to be lost. And and to stop looking at the government as the means to create this change that we wish to see. I mean, we truly have to be the change we want to see in the world. It sounds cliche, but it's real. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I actually – so I had a – a lot of thoughts uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, on personal responsibility and the importance of that. And in my own life, I've kind of started to try to make little changes. I guess this is more on to solving the problem rather than talking about it. But anyways, in my own life, I've been trying to make little changes, like make my bed every day. Um, I know Jordan Peterson talks about that. I was going to say, you listened to Jordan Peterson, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my mom. But um <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, the importance of doing small things like uh, I talked with Jordan A. Brown and I, I told him about um, I have a thankful list that I do every day. I write three things that I was thankful for on that day. And it's little things like that and and like taking the initiative on things that I think build up to like creating this life where you can actually make a positive difference in the world. And it all starts at that basic level. But I, I see like a lot in my I don't know. I guess in my generation, maybe it's just stereotypical for um, teenagers. Well, because we're in this like oppressed Olympics kind of mentality. I mean, there was an amazing um, video with Dave Rubin at a college, and this one this one uh, female college student who's standing there with a microphone, just completely bitter and full of you know disdain toward towards Dave Rubin, and she's talk she's going on on how terrible things are in America, and and Dave Rubin just he, he calmly goes. Stop. You're not oppressed. Stop it. And I think we really we we are so and I say this as an American, we are so freaking privileged in the idea that, you know, the problems that take place in America, if you took your, you know, the 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 very bottom 1% of America and you took that 1% and you put them over in some third world country, they would live like kings. And I think we we are so in our own bubble, the American bubble of, you know, what's what's good and what's bad and what's fair and what's not that we really lose perspective that if we were over in in Africa or we were in South America where you have these essentially third world countries i mean they are in truly absolute poverty i mean americans that are in poverty in america today are are kings in, in countries where they are in absolute poverty and i think if we're able to, and I, unfortunately, I don't think this will happen, but if we're able to objectively look at our own position in the world and our own position in life and get some perspective as to how other people live, I think that would lead to a, a better means of trying to actually have meaningful discourse. But the problem is, is that we have so many generations that uh, individuals within not only my generation your generation and and the generations that came before us who are in this mindset of i'm oppressed i've been you know i've had disadvantages in my life i'm i'm being you know uh, i'm being looked down upon by by certain people in in society and it's like you know what you might be but compare that to to india or you compare that to saudi arabia you are you are truly living a life that they can't even begin to fathom and i think that's going to be one of the major issues. And the, one of the major things that people like Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson are trying to address, and we're starting to see a change in mentality. And I think that will be the the real kicker to help get things going forward in a positive way. Okay, so let's take, let's say like at basement, I'm like you are oppressed. Maybe you're the most oppressed person in the world. But kind of what we were talking about earlier, like who's the best person to stop that oppression? Like is it the this far off person in Washington DC or is it like you right there right now saying like look stop like I am a fine individual and I can do whatever I want like I'm like I guess I have I am gifted here by God would be a religious point of view um and and then work to better yourself and better your life around you but like just asking someone else that's far away to do it for you is um probably not going to work as effectively it's like if i'm laying in my bed and i need to get up to go do something like either i can yell across my house and say someone come get me out of bed i can't do it myself or i can like get the motivation to get out of bed make my bed go get ready for the day and do what i have to do 
but which one is going to be faster and more effective? And I think it's important for us to ask the question that's not being asked, who's doing the oppressing? Is it is it your your day-to-day interactions with people or is it the government? I mean, look at Saudi Arabia. If you are a, a homosexual in Saudi Arabia, you're getting tossed off buildings, okay? In America, you you are not getting tossed off buildings. Yes, you might be oppressed in terms of your your ability to to I mean, up until 2014 to, to get same-sex married, but who was doing the oppressing in terms of that? It was government with their various <laughs> laws and regulations on the book that were preventing people from entering into voluntary contractual agreements. So like, we have to stop and say, who's doing the oppressing? And I'm gonna say it right now, well, 100% of the times, it's the government who's doing the the oppressing. And how is it at all logical or, or rational to then say, well, to, to fix the oppression done by the government, we need more government. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> and it's just like this, uh, this almost like a Stockholm syndrome. I mean, we're, we're getting into this mentality of we're being beat down and abused by government. And to fix it, we need more government. Tell me, how does that make sense? And it doesn't. It's just natural to come back to, okay, let's take racism, for example, and then follow it back. And where did it originate from? Like, who was doing the original oppressing? It's going to be the government. Um, the government. With yep. what you were saying, same-sex marriage. Um, originally, who was keeping that from happening? The government. Um, mm-hmm. You can go on and on. In Saudi Arabia, who was keeping women from driving? Uh, still is keeping women, women from driving until I think yesterday they finally enacted mm-hmm. that policy. Who was doing it, though? The government. And the government yep. has created this culture, or the other way around, the culture created the government, whatever, that is now continuing the oppressing. So it starts off as just the government, and then it expands outward from that into the culture and the society, which I think is also very interesting. And it makes, when you bring that up to someone who is usually politically left-leaning in their progressiveness, and you, you mentioned that, it's almost like, I would say, they, they just shut down. And I think that's part of the reason why, why you know, I'd, I, I won't say I think, I know, that's part of the reason I started my show, was because I wanted to have those voices of of those voices of of progressivism and liberalism onto my show to number one, be able to voice their beliefs to my audience to help my audience understand where they're coming from. But then to also have those real conversations to say like, well, time out. Like you're complaining about, like we just mentioned, you're complaining about, about same sex marriage, but like what created the laws that prevented same sex couples from being married? And you have to have those come to Jesus moments for the people on the left. And, and ultimately, some people on the right um, to, to say, like, a lot of your your issues, a lot of the, the 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 mantles that you're placing your political beliefs on, the whole reason that those problems exist is going to be because of some type of government interaction or government program or or you name it that relates to government. And once we start to have those conversations and start to have those aha moments – then we'll start to see, you know, this this massive hierarchical hierarchical government structure truly be broken down piece by piece. Um, you know, as much as he is a bombastic jerk, Trump, even though I did not vote for him, and there's a lot of things he does I don't like, he is doing one thing perfect, and he is creating such distrust in government that it's making people on the the left start to open their eyes in some cases and say, Oh my God, why is he be, why is he able to do this? And, and I'm a little nervous cause on the right, people are saying, yes, government's able to do this now. And it's, 
you know, it's it's this tribe mentality of, well, now we have the power. We're going to use the stick against you. Um, but to I, I, I hope that that Trump being Trump and being so bombastic and so irrational and just, you know, he's he's <laughs> there's that stand up comedy bit that just came on Netflix and the guy's name escapes me. But the, the horse in the hospital, you know, there's the horse in the hospital. Nobody's ever seen what happens with a horse in the hospital, but everybody's just watching because there's a horse in the hospital. Like that is a perfect analogy for what Trump is doing. And it's creating so much distrust for for the the power that the the horse has in the hospital that people are like maybe we shouldn't put horses or or you know or elephants or or donkeys in a hospital again. Um, so fingers crossed that actually stands true. But I, I do I, I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. But it's 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 interesting because I I mean I agree with a lot of what Trump's policies are doing. Out myself as a conservative again, um, but. It's interesting to look at what he's doing because I don't totally agree with a lot of what he says, but like the media definitely exists. Do you mind me asking like what, what, what uh, specific policies about Trump do you like? I'm just, I'm just, I want to hear your feedback. Um, so I liked the tax law. Definitely. I did a a lot of episodes on that and it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like the perfect tax code that I could have asked for, but I'm not a tax expert, but it did lower the business tax, which was, um, great. And then, but he's cut a lot of, regulations especially and i live in california i think you're in pennsylvania correct yeah correct i'm in philly yeah so i mean california is just literally the worst Uh, the best location i would say in probably the country but also the worst um government in the country as well just because of the overburdensome regulations so trump has cut a lot of those and my family works and is in construction and so that helps a lot with that business because you have less less regulations obviously so less money spent um and then a lower business tax so more money in your pocket yeah i'm selfish whatever <laughs> but then also you're so you're not selfish well no. my family likes to keep the money that they earn um and then he had uh neil gorsuch who i think has been so far a pretty good force on the supreme court cut i guess he's cutting a lot of the the deep state it was interesting i heard a talk on that the other night and i totally think conservatives should stop using the term deep state because when you actually break it down and look at it all it is is a bunch of obama appointees who then made laws that they can't be fired so they're just stuck there because they want to be because they made the law so he's getting rid of a lot of, of a lot of that and then the lobbying interests in government so kind of just a lot of i guess cutting down government a little bit and then also on the cultural front i know you probably don't agree totally but i think it's interesting to see that we have a president again who's more religiously focused, which I think is positive in that a lot of the value I agree with a lot of the values and morality that come out of Christianity. And again, I don't believe that the government should be enforcing a lot of that, but I think it's good to have someone out front who's really a positive role model in that aspect as well. Well, I, I know it's your show and it's your questions, but the reason I ask is because you know, I, I get asked that question a lot too, because I'm not a Trump hater. I mean, I was never Trump during the GOP primaries because I thought he was going to do a terrible disservice to the Republican brand as well as the conservative brand. And in, in some cases, the libertarian brand, because some of what he has done has been libertarian in in, in practice. Um, but I, I look at Trump. He's not it's, – it's not one of these zero-sum games. Either you love him or you hate him. It's – I look at him as a policy by policy president. Um, you know, I like that he did tax cuts. I hate that he didn't cut spending. Um, I love that he appointed Neil Gorsuch. I hate that he didn't get uh, he didn't uh, really look at getting rid of Obamacare. Um, you know, there's there are things about Trump 
that I can look at and objectively say, this was good. I mean, Ben Shapiro has his good Trump, bad Trump segments he does. And I think that that that's exactly how we have to look at Trump. I mean, I hate that Trump is an adulterer and I hate that he is a bombastic and just, I think personally, he's probably a human piece of debris. I love that he is able to go in and absolutely go wacko crazy on regulations and cut them and cut them and cut them because that's what he he thinks should be done. Um, so I think part of my my perspective on Trump, and I'm I'm going in now because I know this is one of the questions you're going to you raise up, and I think we're already here, so I'll, <laughs> I'll cover it. Is that you know I, I look at Trump, and I I think his policies. I would say like maybe like 60-ish percent are good. Um, 40% are either not so good or I would leave it, you know, in, in the big question mark because it's too soon to tell. I mean, we're literally just over two years into his presidency. Um, but I look at more along the lines. Now, my background, obviously, it, it, uh, was from more of a, a public relations and marketing kind of perspective. Trump will be great for bringing in the the populist conservatives that have felt disenfranchised for a number of years. The problem is is that that group of people, by and large, are going to be older voters who aren't going to be here much longer anyways. I'm just you know that's a hard truth. Um, when you look at Trump's approval ratings with regards to the young, uh, the youth, uh, be it from like 20 to around 35, dismal, absolutely horrible. Um, that's a really big red flag. Um, I look at someone like Trump and it makes me nervous because we might feel good right now in terms of the the positives in policy that we're getting from Trump. But when we get 20 years removed from a Trump presidency and the the absolute disdain that he has created for a many a, a, a vast number of young voters who will then be in that 35 to 45 year old range, which is the one of the larger demographics in terms of voting, um, I think we're really going to pay for it. I mean, you look at the likes of a Bernie Sanders. There's a reason that Bernie Sanders resonated to a lot of young voters. And a lot of it is the same reason that Trump resonated to a lot of older voters. And it is this populist uh, rhetoric that says, you know, I, I'm I'm with you. I, I feel you. I understand your concerns. And I'm going to use government to fix it. And that's a huge danger I see from someone like Trump, but also someone like Bernie Sanders, because they – I mean, to be very honest, and, and you, you might likely disagree, and that's fine, I think Trump has zero principles whatsoever. Trump is Trump. Trump has no wavering you know, convictions. He, he just does what he thinks is popular slash what is good for, for him. And I think that's a big red flag because if we're going to embrace that kind of uh, you know, individual to lead the Republican Party – and and we're not going to to hold any type of, of principles at the the core root of our our you know our party beliefs then then what are we really saying you know 10 years from now when we have a Kanye versus you know Tom Hanks election and, and we deserve it honestly if it comes down to it we we deserve what we're getting i mean it, it it's kind of sad because we we've, we've deserved what we gotten in president trump in terms of some good things but also ultimately i think it's going to be a lot of bad things um it, it really speaks to where we are as a country. And again, I, I don't look at Trump as this zero-sum game, but I think we really have to to take a step back and say, what what are we doing right now? 
with, with President Trump. Why why President Trump? And I know you had Michael Johns on. I used to I, I had a lot of uh, back and forth with him on Twitter during the the uh, primary. You know why why Trump over Ted Cruz or Rand Paul? Why why Trump over over uh, uh, Scott um, Scott uh, uh, over in, in uh, Wisconsin? Scott Walker. Scott Scott Walker. I was gonna say Scott Brown. I was like that's not the right Scott. <laughs> but like why Trump over those people? And it really it spoke to me in terms of who was supporting Trump, and it was those people who wanted to hear there was going to be someone who's going to go in and and fix the government and then to give them a voice because they felt underrepresented uh, during the past eight years. And I think that is a horrible, horrible way to to nominate someone to lead your party going forward and then to to run a government um, because – it's just going to it's going to foster this tribalism it's going to foster this mentality of it's us versus them and it's really going to hurt the the future going forward with with the young voters um so i mean that's that's kind of my take on trump i i like some of what he does but i think that he as a personality and as a figurehead is going to do a lot more damage than he's going to do good yeah I, i'm i don't know i'm kind of on the fence about that um Mostly because I think that the younger voters are kind of what you were saying, that how we have to look at Trump. They like to look at like policy by policy, like what's good and what's bad. We don't necessarily care who it's coming from. So, yeah, a lot of what Trump is doing is abhorrent. But I think also the media's focus on a lot of the like superficial issues, like the whole talk of the last, I don't know, week or two or a week has been Melania wore this stupid jacket that said, I don't care to you. Um, well, well, if I may, don't yeah. conflate Trump and the media because the media has been one of the, the biggest uh, deceiving groups in American politics for, for decades. It wasn't just Trump. And I actually I think a lot of people on the left don't realize this. They, they look at someone like Trump as creating and fostering this distrust towards the media. This distrust towards the media has existed for, for decades, especially for those on the right. I mean, we just saw here as we're uh, you know, recording today on, on Sunday, the 24th, uh, Glenn Beck was on Brian Stelter's show and he was supposed to be talking about immigration. And then Stelter has, has this question raised up about the blaze failing and Glenn Beck, you know, what do you think about that, Glenn? And Glenn walked off the show, and, and and Stelter had the audacity to act shocked that Glenn would be upset because here he invited Glenn on to talk about immigration, and then pulls this question about the, the blaze and, and Glenn's and Glenn's company and the 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 personal financial issues that that's likely faced there, and and that's that's existed for for decades. And I think, again, it kind of goes back to this this notion of people are looking for Trump to be that horse in the hospital to to, you know, make things crazy. And yes, the, the media has done a very dishonest job in representing a lot of Trump's um, his beliefs and, and creating these very false narratives, which people see. And I actually think will foster another four years of Trump come 2020. But I think we, we have to be able to separate what the dishonesty of the media has done versus Trump, who he actually is and in his personal statements. And I mean, when Trump go, was in the primary and say, I could go out onto fifth Avenue and shoot someone and not lose any voters. That's not the media, you know, changing the narrative. I mean, Glenn Beck had, Glenn Beck was probably one of the most noted never Trumpers during the primary. And, and Glenn made it a point to, to, you know, raise up actual recordings of Trump and Trump's positions and Trump's beliefs and Trump's character flaws 
And he's saying, this is who you are, you are nominating. This is who you're trying to to be the, the face of conservatism and, and the GOP. There's no 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 ne- negative media spin here. This is who he is. And I think we have to you know take a hard step back and look at it objectively. Who is Trump? And I think. And again, no disrespect to you. I think we're you're you're in a pipe dream if you think Trump is a conservative or if Trump is is a libertarian. Trump is Trump. Trump is a populist. Trump looks to see what is popular. I mean, heck, why do you think he signed the executive order trying to to stop the uh, the separation of, of kids from their families? It wasn't because he he has you know in the heart of hearts some deep held belief on immigration policy. It's because he saw it was negative. It was getting negative reactions in the public. And he wants to be popular, so he changes the rules. Big issue I see with someone like Trump, because we have to be real. If it was Rand Paul or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or even John Kasich that was in the White House, the media would be just as dishonest as they are right now with Trump. But just because they would be just as dishonest doesn't mean we we have someone who is equally as dishonest leading the party to to try to combat that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. Like, um. I don't really think that Trump is a conservative. I don't think that he has too much of a backbone in, in the sense that he has an ideology or philosophy that he follows other than, yeah, what makes him popular. Because I thought the same thing about the um, executive order ending the um, the separation of children at the border. But I think it leads into an, another question of, like, what are you looking for in the leader of the executive branch? Like, does it matter if it's Trump or if it's Bill Clinton, who had a similar moral history as Trump, leading the the government if they're still passing policies that you agree with? So, like, in that sense, like, are we glorifying the leader themselves and the personality, and do we care too much about that? Or do we want more of the policy on that side? So, and in my view, yes, Trump, terrible things like cheated on all of the wives that he's had, including his current wife while she was pregnant with um, Baron Trump. But at the same time, do you look past that and say, well, hey, he's passing policies that are good and that are eventually going to lead, hopefully, to a more limited government um, in this aspect? Essentially, if you glorify the leader too much, then you might lose out on some of the policies because we could have had someone like uh, John Kasich, who's I thought was pretty pleasant to listen to he's not too uh not too extreme but i think that some of his policies were kind of eh, like on the border between um adding more government and not so i think it's an interesting question there i was gonna say right there like it didn't have to be trump or Kasich. i mean we had some conservative stalwarts i mean we had Rand paul who he he had my my you know full endorsement during the primaries you know conservative libertarian who at the time was, was one of the most uh, respected U.S. senators and had the highest polling in any GOP member. We had someone like Ted Cruz, who he's a little bit too religious for me. I think he's a little too wishy-washy in some areas um, when he, he like kind of gets some backlash. But Ted Cruz was easily one of the, the top contenders in terms of not only principles, but also in electability. You had someone like Scott Walker in, in Wisconsin who was doing wonderful things for that, that state. You had people like, uh, I mean, heck, even Marco Rubio, Carly Fiorina, you know, these these individuals who didn't have the baggage. They didn't have the the grossness of Trump. I mean, 2016 was literally the election between the worst candidate ever and the second worst candidate ever and the second worst candidate ever won. I mean, that's that's kind of where we were as a country in 2016. And that's something we have to come to rectify. If it had been, you know, if it had been Rand Paul versus Hillary Clinton or good, I would love to have watched Carly Free Arena 
versus Hillary Clinton, because then the whole gender discussion is out the window. You have your first woman president no matter what. Um, if, if if we'd had someone like that versus the, the Donald Trump, you know, part of the, the, the GOP that ended up taking over, I think we're in a lot better position because right now, if we had President Rand Paul, I mean, I can tell you right now, flat out, we would have repealed Obamacare. We would have um, had the tax cuts. We would have had all the wonderful things that we're praising Trump for, the Neil Gorsuch's, the regulations being cut. But I think we would have had a lot more. We wouldn't have this this nonsensical trade war that we're engaging in with with both our, our I wouldn't say enemies, but our trade partners, both, uh, you know, you know, allies as well as neutral slash acquaintance uh, countries like China and the likes, um, we would have been in a much better position and we would have had a a leader who they have credibility and they have the ability to represent America on a national stage with a lot more credibility than Trump does. I mean, let's let's look at the executive as it is. And I think this is something that we just have to deal with as America is that the president isn't just the executive. He is also the the face of the nation when he is, is abroad. He, he's kind of like, he, he, I mean, he, he essentially is, he is the, the Royal family and the prime minister in the United kingdom, but in one person, he is one entity. So he represents America, but he also represents the, the actual government itself. Um, that, that's just something we have to, to acknowledge. And I don't think it's, it's a right, it's a right way to frame things saying it's Bill Clinton versus Trump, it's saying, did Trump even have to be the nominee? Did Trump, why, why? I mean, that's why I gave Michael Johns a lot of crap because he was a Tea Party Republican and then supporting Donald Trump right when he had other choices. And I, I really do. I, I will, to this day, question Republicans who supported Donald Trump over the likes of a Rand Paul or a Ted Cruz or named the other 16 candidates that were running. So then what are your thoughts for the 2020 election? I I, I mean, I guess you may, might be voting libertarian, but um, if it comes down to Trump and whoever the Democratic nominee is, who will you vote for? Will you vote? <laughs> I, I would lean towards the libertarian candidate because I think that the libertarian party definitely still has a role in terms of, like I mentioned before, you know, being the alternative and trying to keep the other parties honest. Um, but with that being said, I, I hate the false choice. It has to be Trump or, or, you know, Elizabeth Warren. The, we've gotten into this terrible mindset of, you know, this political dichotomy and duopoly that has to be the Republican or the Democrat. And I, I understand I'm a realist. I understand that it's going to be Republican or the Democrat. Um, but I don't think that automatically, again, going back to what we talked about before, that doesn't mean they earn my, they deserve my vote because they're the top two candidates. Um, and looking at Trump, I, I will be the first one to, to, you know, come out and say Trump has done some good policy. I will fully acknowledge that. But a vote for Trump, in my my personal opinion, is a vote for much more than policy. Um, it's a vote for the person. Uh, and that's why I didn't vote for Trump in 2016 and Trump won without me in 2016. Um, so, I mean, un unless he does something absolutely out of this world, like the next, you know, year and a half, he goes, you know, absolutely wild and crazy being a libertarian, which I'm not gonna hold my breath for because we're just watching with, with the way he's treating immigration and the, and the, the trade wars, I don't have any faith that all that all happen. Then maybe like maybe a 0.5 percent chance that Trump could earn my vote. Um, 
but I'm, I mean, I'm being realistic. I'm yeah. looking forward to 2024 and saying, God, I hope Rand Paul takes one more swing. Um, you know, I hope that the libertarians will put somebody up in 2020 who will, will actually be a strong, you know, strong person to to go against Donald Trump and whoever the Democratic nominee is and and create some legitimacy to the Libertarian Party um, as a true third alternative to the the GOP and Democratic Party. So at this point, it's a very politician answer to say, but I don't know yet. And I, I, I'm leaning towards no, I wouldn't vote for Trump. I'm not going to vote for the Democrat. I might just skip the uh, the presidential vote at all if the Libertarian candidate's really bad and just vote down ballot. Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's scary living here in... Um in California because now we've come down to either John Cox or Gavin Newsom. And I'm sure you haven't, you don't, I don't know if you pay attention at all to California politics, but Gavin Newsom is literally the antithesis of what we've been talking about today. Um, with the fact that he wants to use government to do literally everything. Um, like all of the social policies, government has to be involved wants to totally reform education. Government has to be involved. Um, and on top of that, simply raising the gas tax even more, we just got a higher gas tax. So I think here in California, we're seeing a preview of kind of what the Democratic Party is becoming. And so to me, it's a little worrisome to think that, like, not only could we get Gavin Newsom in California, um, but also could get a very, very left leaning president in 2020. Um, and so I think it kind of comes down to the question of what we ask, of what I asked earlier, if, if, um, like the libertarian takes votes away from Trump and we end up with that far left Democrat, and maybe that's a false dichotomy, but it certainly has happened before. Like, how does that work out for us in the end? I mean, I guess we just get the Democrat and kind of have to suck it up for four to eight years. Well, you, and you, you you're going to laugh when you hear this, but, um, there, there have been many studies done, and it has been shown throughout American history that the United States operates in a much more fiscally conservative manner when you have a Republican-led Congress and a Democrat in the White House. Hmm. And it's funny how that's worked out that way. I'm not advocating for that to be ideal, but hell, look what just happened here this past uh, January. We just passed a one point – was it two – some odd trillion dollar tax cut while then raising spending by one point something trillion dollars, adding even more money to the, the federal debt, right? That that's hardly conservative. And yet when we look back under Clinton, we had a Democrat in the white house and Clinton and then a Republican held Congress. And that was the first time in decades that we'd actually seen a, a true cut in the, the deficit. Um, that, that says something. And I, <sighs> I look at Republicans and Democrats, there's that old Twix commercial, left Twix, right Twix. Like, they're both Twixes. You're, you're going to get the same thing in one way, shape, or the other. It's just going to be either one's on the left or one's on the right. They're the same thing. And I think part of the problem is that we've kind of gotten into this mindset. It has to be part of the same. And we believe the marketing and PR from both parties that they are somehow different. Um, I mean, yes, you have an Elizabeth Warren who's a far lefty and a Bernie Sanders who's a lefty. But on the right, I mean... Trump is hardly conservative. And I'm going to tell you right now, if 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 the Congress flips to the the Democratic Party, I would not be surprised in the slightest to see Donald Trump work with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to promote 
pretty much anything they want to get done. Because the reality is, like we said earlier, Trump doesn't have policies or, or principles or positions that he believes in. He believes in Trump. I mean, there's a reason that he was a registered Democrat like three times in his life and that he's he's supported financially all these Democratic presidents because or, or uh, Democratic candidates because he doesn't care. He, he just wants to support whoever will be in office that will make his interests uh, look better. And right now it's him. It's him. And it will be if, if the Democrats win in 2020, it'll be Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi. Um, so, no, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if that were to happen. And, and you know, you'd mentioned that you know, we, we could have a Democrat president and for you living in California, it could be really bad. So I, I look at this, um, there's two issues at hand that we really need to to kind of. Uh, analyze. One is strategic voting. Um, so I went to college for, for political science and, and I focused on American government and constitutional law. And one of my uh, one of the main points of my thesis was the idea of strategic voting. So you you mentioned right there perfectly. You know, if I vote, if we end up with a Democrat, it's going to be a big net, uh, you know, negative yield for me in terms of what I'm getting out of the the candidate that was elected in terms of policy. Um, but to the contrary. I, I look at it is is we need to be able to continue promoting the idea of getting rid of this this false you know duopoly this false dichotomy and, and choice and to be able to foster in different voices different um, third party uh, voices to change it so we don't have this this you know Republican or Democrat decision that we have to make every November um, yeah I'm a big fan of strategic voting to to create it so your your vote actually means something. It has weight to it and and you really will be able to have a direct um, a direct impact in not only the uh, the winner but uh, to really change the ability to bring these third parties out of the shadows. Um, if we want to see things truly change for the better, we have to start being the change. and it really goes down to the idea of federalism. I mean, in, in California, vote for the Republican if you think that's going to have a better impact on your state level. But, I mean, one thing that I think people need to realize is that their vote for, for president means almost nil when you compare it to your vote for school board. Start trying to change things locally. Change your school board. Change your, your town council and your, your county legislature. Change your state assembly or state senate. Start bringing more candidates in who will represent your actual ideals. Stop looking to the, the, the president of the United States to be the figurehead for what you're supposed to believe. Actually, you know, look for candidates who represent your principles locally and then will actually have a real impact on your, your home area. I mean, people don't realize that state sales tax and, and local property taxes are some of the most costly taxes that you face on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, then vote to change those. But I, I think it's silly if we get into this mindset that if we don't vote for, for Trump or, or if we don't vote for, for Hillary, that it's going to make you know that much of a big change at the federal level. And honestly, we look at, at how things have, have changed over the past you know, 30, 40 years – it really doesn't make too much of a difference. Um, again, they're they're Twix. They're the same flavor, but one's on the left side and one's on the right. Yeah, and it's interesting actually because we just I've mentioned my conversation with Jordan uh, Brown. Probably this is probably the third time, but we talked about that uh, and specifically that a lot of people attach their meaning to this national government and the um, presidential election and the elections for Congress. And that really gives them very little meaning because it will go on and it will always persist without them. But what is more impact on you is the 
state elections, the local elections and all of that. I mean, California just passed the gas tax and it went up 20 bucks. I fill up my my um, gas tank. Yeah, it's a big cost on a lot of the people and not much of that comes from the federal government. I mean, a lot of it does, but a lot of it comes from the state government. So for example, California, um, there's just a proposed plan to split California into three states. And I was talking to somebody about it. And I live in what would be Southern California, which has some more conservative counties. And essentially what I was saying, because his argument against it was, well, that'll give the Democrats more senators. And it's possible that it might give give them two or three more senators. But being in a conservative state in Southern California would be so much better for us, even if the Democrats had, I well, I think a little bit more power in the Congress, which I don't think is guaranteed, but to just live in a state where you don't get taxed and regulated on and on and on and on, I think would just be so good, even if the Democrats in Congress decide um, to do bad things. And if you look at Congress, like Congress doesn't really get that much done. I mean, out of all of Trump's promises, um, and the Republicans' promises in the 2016 election, pretty much all they did was the tax cut, which was gr- good but not great, and repeal the individual mandate, which was also good but not great because the Obamacare and the infrastructure out there is still existing. Um, and other than that, like I guess he appointed Neil Gorsuch, um, but not very much gets done on the federal level. But the state governments are like passing uh, bill after bill after bill. And it just becomes more burdensome and more burdensome, especially when you're in a democratic state. Well, that's why I'm a big proponent of federalism. I mean, I had William F. Buckley O'Reilly, who was the uh, the pro, uh, chairman pro tem for the Federalist Party of America on my show back a few months ago. And um, you know, we talked just about this, is that when you look at the way that the federal government is a, is set up right now, it was actually set up to get as little as as much accomplished. That like that's the idea. Like that's how it was actually set up. That's why there's a two thirds um, majority or a three fourths majority of, of the uh, the Congress needed in order to pass new amendments. That's the reason that we have the the sixty vote threshold, the filibuster threshold in the Senate. You know the government was, and I think people don't realize this. Like government was was actually built by the framers at the federal level to not be productive it's it's not a a, it's not a flaw of the system it's it's an actual like design part of the system um and i think that's one thing that people have to get back in 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 terms in how they look at government um and and you mentioned yes you know you'd have a much better represent uh, representation from a conservative state in California with a, you know, Southern California state than you do as the whole California being, you know, a, a big lefty utopia. Um, but I mean, take it a step further, you'd be much further ahead, ha- ahead to have a strong conservative or, or libertarian, um, you know, local government than you would having a state that was, you know, strongly Democrat or Republican. Um, so with that, I say, you know, not just you, but people across who are listening to the, this this podcast across the nation, lead by example, get active in local in local races. You know, e- either support candidates who are running that represent your your vision for what you want to see in your, in your world, 
or be the one to actually to run. I mean, get out there, lead by example, run for office, um, get involved, write letters to the editor, to your local paper. I do what you have to do locally to be able to to make an impact because it's going to have so much of an impact on you personally than you know going out and stumping for Trump or or being never Hillary. It, it just it. I think people need to, to get back into this mindset that, yeah, it's not sexy to, to vote for your school board person. It's not. But guess what? When you when you go to do your taxes in, on April 15th, which is my birthday, you're going to feel a lot better when you see a smaller property tax bill than you would if, if you had a, a you know really high-taxed um, you know, liberal school board in your area. So get local. Try and, and and do what you can on your local level, and it's gonna it's gonna yield such a better result and a positive outcome for for people on on a more individual basis than than worrying about the national uh, political sec uh, you know scene. We 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 get so lost in the the sexiness of the Mueller scandal or or you know Stormy Daniels or you know James Comey. And, and we don't realize, you know, Jane Doe running for school board, she's going to be voting to increase our property taxes by 15 percent. Well, that seems a little more important, doesn't it, than than James Comey, you know, and some book he wrote? Like, we got to get our, our priorities in order. Yeah, definitely. Your local governments have a much bigger impact on you than the federal government, and that's just a fact. And the federal government doesn't get a lot done, but if you can stop your local government from doing too much that's going to hurt you, then so be it. But uh, with that, I think we're kind of rounding out to the end here and i have a few questions from um one of my patreons uh zach who is a generous 30 dollar donate donor and he had a few questions for you so if you wouldn't mind uh answering them i think he had one about yeah he had one about racial tensions but i'd say we already we already had a pretty good conversation on that but a few very interesting ones so this one i actually i actually like says with the ever-increasing acceptance of executive orders as a substitute for congressional action do you believe that America could at some point become a dictatorship? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. It, it, people are, this hurts to say, people always are looking for someone to fix fix stuff. They never want to take the responsibility on their own. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about before. So people look to the government to fix stuff. So what better way to fix stuff than to elect someone who is going to fix stuff and then will be there forever to keep that stuff fixed? I mean, it it's scary because I could easily see someone like a Trump try and turn into a dictator. I mean, there's a reason he praises um, the president of China for being president for life because he wishes he could do that. Um so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if one day America either just through fiat or through just it just happens kind of turns into a dictatorship. I mean, FDR could have easily been a dictator in the 1940s had he not passed away. Um, you know, four terms as, as U.S. president. That's that's quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't I would not be surprised in the least. It would break my heart. and I really hope that people wake up and wouldn't let that happen. But. Uh, could it happen? Yeah. Would I be surprised? No. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I would hope that our Constitution would uh, prevent that from happening and our people would wise up and not elect the same person uh, well, for I so mean, long. Well, I really but... quick. I mean, that also requires Congress to stand up and do something to to use their power of the purse to to say, no, we weren't, we're not going to fund this, et cetera, et cetera. But right now we've watched Congress. They've been they've been pretty uh uh, how do I put this tactfully? They they've been very lack uh when it comes to 
standing against President Trump. And I would not be surprised in the slightest if you have someone of the, the political stature of like a, a Donald Trump or an FDR who basically was able to, to, to browbeat Congress into submission and then to enact their own, you know, whoever that person is, to enact their own vision of the, the, the country and then to basically appoint themselves as dictator. I wouldn't be surprised. And uh, it really it kind of gives me a shiver down my spine to even think about it. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, FDR had his strategy of appointing as many Supreme Court justices as he could. I don't think he ever really did increase them too much, but um, he definitely had put a lot of pressure on both the Supreme Court and on Congress to pass his New Deal program. So, yeah, interesting. I, I don't know what I think, but uh, so on to the next question, uh, a little more personal, but if you were to run for president of the United States, what would be the first item on your agenda and how would you handle it? First item of my agenda as president of the United States would be to cut as many regulations and to limit the size of the executive government as as far as possible. I would try to make it so my job as president of the United States would have so little meaning that hopefully in, in, in the, the four years after my, my running, there wouldn't even need to be an election for president because the president would have such little power. And to be honest, that's kind of the way it was supposed to be in the first place. Um, you know, the government, I'm not an anarchist. The government has, but the government has very, very, very little uh, responsibility um, when it was when it was written in the framing of the Constitution. Get back to the Constitution, make it so the, the, the powers of the government, especially in the executive branch, are what it says in the executive branch, and leave it at that. Don't, don't let the, uh, the uh, desire to increase the, the size and scope of the executive branch you know, lead to actually increasing it. Try to limit it to the point that there is no even need to uh, run or to have the vested interest in, in corporate lobbyists and the likes to influence the executive because the executive would have no power. Um, I would love to see a, a world where the, the federal government has yeah. only a specific number of, uh, you know, responsibilities and that's it. Uh, people get all pissy about, uh, corporate, uh, interactions in, in influencing, uh, elected officials is like, well, why do you think they influence them? Because they're able to get regulations put in place to, you know, push out their competitors. They're able to get, you know, these nice little subsidies to make it so they can, you know, uh, you know, pad their their profits. Of course, they're gonna to reach out to to lobby these individuals. So, um, make it so that they there's no desire, there's no need to to you know lobby because you're not gonna get anything out of it anyways. So. Shrink the government. That's my role. That's my my goal. That's my my desire as as president of uh, the United States in 2036. <laughs> well, one can only hope that it happens. Um, but and maybe that would be uh, the eventual dictatorship that we would have would be you running <laughs> the government <laughs> forever. I'm the and government ever. that leave everybody else alone. How about that? <laughs> so, anyways, thank you so much for coming on today. And where can our audience find out a little bit more about you and the Brian Nichols Show? Absolutely. So if uh, if folks are, are not tired of me yet and they want to check me out, swing over to uh, The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, you can find me on uh, on iTunes, Fireside, Patreon, uh, Stitcher, anywhere really to uh, to get your fix of The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, we release a show weekly. I uh, just released my show here. It was uh, The Brian Nichols Show, The Farm Bill, and uh, Charles Krauthammer and Respect. It came out today. I uh, ran a little behind getting that up. Um, but they can follow me on Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. I, uh, I'm always active 
on Twitter. Uh, or if they're interested, follow me on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty as well. Um, also, if uh, you want to reach me directly, shoot me an email at thebriannicholsshow at gmail.com. And uh, if they're interested in any of those uh, don't hurt people, don't take people's stuff bumper stickers I mentioned earlier, uh, send me an email. We can go ahead and, and figure out, uh, you know, where we can get that sent to you and, and move along from there. But, uh, but Luke, again, thank you so much for having me on today. It was a pleasure, and I really look forward to uh, to doing this again really soon. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and be sure to go follow Brian over there on Twitter. He has some uh, viral tweets I'm talking to a Twitter celebrity, so uh, <laughs> so be sure to go follow Brian on Twitter. And what a wonderful conversation, a lot of controversial topics, but hopefully ones that will inspire you to dig a little deeper beyond what you believe and look for facts and objectivity. So anyways, on that note, thank you so much, Brian, and that's it for today. Awesome. Thanks, Luke. I really appreciate it. And that is it for my interview with Brian Nichols, the associate editor at The Libertarian Republic and host of The Brian Nichols Show. Very interesting interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And I have a lot more interesting interviews coming up for you in the coming weeks. So Andrew Kessler, who is the founder at Slingshot Solutions, a firm dedicated to helping government come up with policies to address the very dangerous opioid epidemic. Over 115 living, breathing Americans are dying every single day due to drug overdoses. So very interesting conversation there. I'm also working on putting in the interview with Tom Brake still. We keep having a few mishaps um, regarding that conversation, but also with someone who is an expert in video game addiction and maybe what some of the policy solutions to that might be. Um, In addition, we're going to be looking at phone addiction, um, what possible dangers there might be to radiation addiction. So that's going to be another interview. I'm also going to be working on setting up an interview with Dr. David Adiznik, who is the Director of Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. That will round out our conversation on the Israeli and Palestinian um, protests along the Gaza border in Israel. And finally, (laughs) a lot of interviews coming up. I'm very excited to share them with you, but also one on the harmful effects of pornography on society and what we might do to address that and broader implications that that has for um, society. So lots of interesting stuff coming up. If you'd like to get access to those interviews early, you can head on over to patreon.com slash bills with Luke. Or if you're just looking to support the podcast, um, we have a few, a lot of different people donating what is amounted to $73 per month, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, I'm just running the show from my bedroom and um, something that I love, love, love doing. So go over to patreon.com, become a subscriber. We have Zach, Mike, Julie, Tiana, and most recently, Scott and Michelle joined our Patreon page with an amazing donation of $10 per month. So greatly appreciated. A lot of different people supporting the show, Ben and Sue, um, and you can be one of them. You can be the next person that I shout out on this podcast and who helps me um, reach my dreams of becoming a podcaster for the rest of my life. Um, But anyways, stay tuned next week. Very interesting conversations coming up. Hope you found this one interesting. Head on over to theedgeofideas.com slash subscribe. Go to iTunes, leave a nice five-star review. Greatly appreciated. And I will see you next week. With that, I'm Luke Scorzell, and you are listening to Bill's. (laughs) 